there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of Tea for C. If you're a regular listener, then you know that on occasion, I take a break from interviewing professionals about their jobs and careers and instead interview experts on wellness, health, and self-care. Well, this episode falls into that latter category. We're going to be discussing how to help you level up in reaching your full potential. And we're going to be talking about how to find your purpose in life. And if you're someone who feels stuck right now, or maybe you feel lost or scared about what to do next, then this is absolutely the episode for you. Frankly, this episode is for you, no matter how you're feeling at this particular moment. And that's because my next guest is someone who has the potential to totally change your perspective on life's ups and downs. And trust me, my friends, we all have our ups and downs. And what he has to share can truly help you find new purpose and motivation in your life. But before I introduce you to Dove Barron, who has been cited not once, but twice as one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers to hire, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out bright and early on Monday mornings to give you a sneak peek on the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And while you're there, I want to invite you to scroll down just a little bit where you'll find the hundreds of T4C episodes we've released to date, and they're organized by career or by wellness, health, and self-care. So you can search the episodes you most want to listen to by career. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my incredible next guest is Dove Barron, a man with his finger on the pulse of the evolving world of next-gen leadership. Dove is a best-selling author of multiple books, his latest entitled Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. Dove is also the host of the national TV show here in the U.S., Pursuing Deep Greatness with Dove Barron on ROKU-TV. And he's the host of the number one podcast for Fortune 500 listeners around the globe, Dove Barron's Leadership and Loyalty Show. You can find it on iTunes, and it's also carried on FM and AM radio stations across the U.S. Dove, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm fully caffeinated. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me to be here. I'm excited to share and to offer value to you and the listeners. Oh my gosh. Well, I am so excited. And honestly, I am so grateful to you for making the time to speak with us and to have the opportunity, Dove, to share your wisdom and your life experiences with the entire T4C community. Thank you. Before we really get going here, Dove, I was hoping that maybe you could share a bit more about your training and your educational background with our listeners, because what I read in the introduction there doesn't include your really varied and eclectic mix of experiences. <laughs> no, it doesn't. The Reader's Digest version is that when I was a child, I was a very strange child who my mum thought might be possessed. So she shipped me off to rabbis to study, and I did. And so my beginning of my education in a non-traditional way was to study with rabbis. I then went on to be about 10 years old and started studying pranayoga and then began to travel the world. And uh, as I traveled the world, I was studying with different spiritual masters around the world. So I studied Vedanta, which is Hindu philosophy, Buddhism, the Tao, Gnostic and Coptic Christianity, as I said, Kabbalah, 
and then went on from there to now you should know that while I was doing all that I was studying and running businesses I ran businesses on three separate continents but while I did those businesses because they allowed me the flexibility to study so then I started studying psychology became very interested in psychology became a therapist and a counselor got bored with people complaining <laughs> started studying the psychology of excellence which today is called the psychology of leadership and found that quite interesting, but found a lot of people who were spiritual, couldn't hold down a job or a relationship. I found that people in counseling wanted to complain. And then I found people in leadership were, you know, very good thinkers and very strategic, but actually seemed to be quite soulless. So I was fascinated by these gaps between the things. And in 84, sort of stumbled into quite literally the study of quantum physics and started studying quantum physics. And as that went through, I got invited to speak for a friend of mine for his company and began my speaking career in 84 and started to pull together the intersection between quantum physics, metaphysics, and psychology. So that's the Reader's Digest version of my bizarre educational platforms. I wonder, you know, just thinking back to what you said your mother thought about you as a young boy, she thought you were possessed. I wonder if that wasn't your higher purpose that was already revealing itself. I like to think it was. For me, it's very simple. Our purpose is always with us. We may not know what it is. We certainly may not know how to articulate it. But it's still our purpose. And so that finds its way out, you know, and what happened just to give everybody context was I was asleep in the tent while we were away on a camping trip. And I sat bolt upright while being asleep for several hours and sat up bolt upright and appeared to speak in another language, which is what freaked my mom out. She had no idea, you know, and it didn't seem to be jibber jabber. It seemed to be an actual language. And so in the morning, she said, did you have a dream last night? And I said, yes. And she said, what did you dream? And I said, I don't know. All I know is that it was I was out in the countryside that didn't look like here. Here was the UK, which is where I was born. And she said, well, where were you? I said, I don't know. And she said, well, what were you saying? And I said, I don't know. I know it was hoppy. And she said, what's hoppy? And I said, I don't know. Oh, my well, God. what I later found out was it was Hopi, Hopi Indian, or Hopi native. So that was that was the freak out moment. Okay, well, it's time to get the rabbis involved. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we should also let our listeners know that you were raised a Jew. So it wasn't just that your mom arbitrarily went to the <laughs> rabbis, right? No, yes, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, the uh, Karis from the Exorcist or the rabbis. Yes. No, it was. It was actually. I was born Jewish in a Jewish family and uh, was the only only Jew in the school. That's not actually true. The, the headmaster was Jewish too, but he actually hid his faith. He didn't want anybody else to know. And the kids would put up their hand and show their five fingers. And I was like, well, I don't know what that means. And then the kids would say, and they would count off their fingers, you know, first finger and then on to the five and say, the Jews killed our Lord. And I, being a smart ass kid, which may not have ever gone away, said, but I don't know who your Lord is. And I certainly didn't kill anybody. So I don't know what you're talking about. I'm 10. <laughs> And at which point I got my face beaten on a regular basis. Oh my gosh. Well, Dove, thank you so much for sharing that sort of prelude here and the context that Mm. we're going to be drawing upon during the course of this interview. And I want to share some context with you and our listeners as to how I stumbled across you out there in the ether and why I'll never forget the holy shit moment I had when I first heard Mm. you speak. And I I really mean that. It was the spring of 2019. So it was about six months ago. And I was here on the East Coast of the US. It was a beautiful day. And I was walking my dog, doing what I love to do when I'm out on a beautiful day walking my dog. And that is I was binging, listening to various podcasts. And the one that I was listening to that day was created and hosted by a young man named Mark Metry. Mark's show is called Humans 2.0. And I want our listeners to know that I've also interviewed Mark in T4C episode 86 and highly recommend it because Mark is actually, and I think Dove will agree, he's a prodigy. He's- 21 years old. He's a successful serial entrepreneur. He's a very deep thinker and he's a beautiful human. Mm -hmm. And 
getting back to what you said, Dove, during your interview with Mark, this thing in particular just rocked my brain. It was kind of like my brain was one of those snow globes and you shook it up. And (laughs) I've never had that happen. I really mean it. I have not had that happen listening to any other podcast before. And Mm. what you said and what you shared about your personal story of resilience and grit, it ended up crystallizing something for me. And it was Mm. in particular around the important role that pain, that painful experiences can and should play in our lives. I mean, the idea that they should, that they can be a positive thing, I hadn't quite put my finger on that until Mm -hmm. I heard you talk about it. So before we get into your really remarkable story, which is incredibly powerful, and how you arrived at your own, I don't know if epiphany is the right word, (laughs) would you mind giving our young listeners an overview of your philosophy around the importance of pain in our lives? Thank you for asking. That's an important, a very important question. So wherever you are right now listening to this, you live in a social media world where everybody looks deliciously happy and they all have the best shots and the best photographs and they did 42 selfies and they put them through the filters before they released one. And there's a picture of them with their best friend and they're hanging out and they're having dinner and it's all complete bullshit. Now, I know you know that, but do you know that? You know it maybe at a conscious level, but you know at an unconscious level, because you find yourself comparing yourself. And as Andrea just pointed out here, pain is important, but self-inflicted pain is not. So I want you to really get this point before we go any further. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is a choice. When you self-inflict the pain, that's suffering. You don't need to suffer. And we suffer based on perception, comparison, and shoulds. So I'm going to start right there. You don't need that pain. That's a choice. But life is going to knock you down to the canvas, and you're going to feel like you're out for the count, and you are going to be able to get back up. I promise you, you can get back up. But if you train yourself to take the pain by self-inflicting it, it will be more comfortable to stay down because you'll get significance. You'll get importance through vulnerability, not real vulnerability, but through the vulnerability of playing victim. And that is crap. You don't want that. You're made for much greater things than that. So pain is an important part of life. And here's what I just want you to know before I go into any details. I want you to imagine that you're walking down the beach with me and we're in South Africa. And we're skipping stones that we find at the bottom of a cliff. And we're just skipping them out into the ocean, you and I. And you pick up and you're always looking for the smooth one to skip out into the ocean. Then you pick one up and it's like, hmm, this one's not as smooth, but it feels weird. And you put it in your pocket. And I do the same thing. I find one that also is a bit weird and I put it in my pocket. And then we carry on skipping stones. And then you and I get on a plane and we come back to North America or back to wherever it is you live. And as we come back together, you put your little stone on the side and you use it as a memento to remind you of our trip to South Africa. I, on the other hand, have this weird feeling about it. And I take it to see a friend of mine in New York City who happens to be a jeweler, diamond polisher in New York. And my friend, I said to my friend, I have a feeling about this stone. I have a feeling about this rock. Maybe it's something else. And my friend says, well, we can find out. And I say, okay. I said, but you should know I've been carrying this stone around for two years. It's now my lucky stone. Every time I go to a presentation, I carry it with me. I just feel like it's my lucky stone. He goes, well, I got some bad news. In order to find out whether it's something else, I'm going to have to crack it. Oh, I could lose the thing that is comfortable to me? Yes. Oh, I'm not sure if I want to do that. Well, you decide. He says, I say, okay, I'm going to do it. And he says, okay. And I see him take out my stone and turn on the wheel and begin to push the rock against the wheel. And I can see the grinding dirt flying up. And if this rock had nerves, it would be in screaming pain. And then he reveals to me the diamond within the rock. That is what pain is. Pain is the wheel that pushes away the rock, that reveals the diamond that you are. If you quit and back off and go, oh, I can't stand the pain, not the suffering, the pain, and you pull away from revealing the diamond that you are, and that is your purpose. 
that is a great visual image to put out there, Dove. And I think what's so important here to talk about is the way that so many of us over the course of our lives have pulled away. Yeah. Whether it's by drinking, uh-huh. using drugs, eating too much, shopping too much, working too much, right? I've um, never done any of those things, by the way. <laughs> Never. So I'm telling you this, and I want you to know that I have never touched a drink or a drug or partied too hard or gone out and tried to get laid or do any of those things. I know you're you're full of shit because I listened to the episodes (laughs) in which you talked about going out drinking with your mates, so... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I See, this is why I'm putting this point forward. The compulsion to run away from your pain is natural. I ran away from my pain. And here's when you'll want to run away the most, when the diamond is about to be revealed. That's when most people quit. That very last second before it was revealed, they go, oh, it's too much, and they back away. Why? You see, we think that we're changed in these moments, these catastrophic moments. We're not. We're only changed in the moments where everything can go back to normal and we choose not to. We choose to instead turn back into the pain and say, F it, I'm going there. But why is that? That seems counterintuitive to me. Why is it that we back off? Well, in that final moment before the diamond is revealed. I'm going to tell everybody this and I want you to take notes on this because it's really important. If you got skin, you got an ego. Now, I know you think you're, maybe some of you think you're very humble and you think that, you know, you know that person at school or you know that person at work who's a bit of an egomaniac. Let me explain something to you about ego. Ego is not the thing that has you bragging. That's part of ego. But the part of you that feels small is also your ego. People who are very insecure often brag a lot. So ego can have two sides to it. Here's what I want you to understand at a psychological level. Everybody has an ego. Your ego is not bad. You need an ego. It's the thing that stops you stepping into the street to be hit by a bus going, hmm, that would be an interesting experience. Your ego is there to keep you alive, to have you have the experiences, but to keep you alive in the process. The problem is that the ego sees change, any change, as a threat. It sees it as potentially a threat. So at that moment when you're at the brink of revealing the diamond, Life will change dramatically when your ego goes, oh, shit, what are we going to do? I know. Let's go back and start dating that person again. That was terrible. Let's let's stay in this shitty job. Let's keep pursuing this university degree that I have no interest in and that might has put me $200,000 in debt for. Let's just keep on the path that's not my path. That's why we back away. We're afraid of something different. Here's what you need to know. The ego sees same as safe. You get that? Same is safe, even if same sucks. I think the other expression, I don't know if you would say this is an exact parallel, is that the devil you know is better than the one you don't or something like that. That's the analogy we use, right? We say better the devil you know. Why are you still in this relationship? Well, at least he doesn't hit me the hell's that going to do with anything? But at least at least he isn't sleeping around. What's that going to do with anything? Do you feel loved? Do you feel honored? Do you feel respected? No, but he doesn't drink and he doesn't he doesn't gamble. What has that got to do with anything? That's based on him. About you, who are you? What do you want? Well, I'm staying in this job, you know, cuz it's got it's got a potential of me getting shares in the firm. But you hate your boss. You dread going to work. Why are you doing this? Well, you know, better the devil you know, because I could leave here and go somewhere else and get a worse boss. You could, but you could also get one much better, because guess what? You can vote with your feet. Yeah. You've got a great quote that I've heard you cite, Dove, from Joseph Campbell. And for our young listeners, he is an author whose most well-known work is the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And in that book, he talks about his theory of the journey of the archetypal hero. And the quote that I heard you used of is, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. That's the one. And that's exactly it. It's that turning into the darkness. 
And most of us are just simply afraid to turn into the dark because most of us are afraid that there is even darkness within us. When you can get to that place of recognizing there is darkness within you, number one, you will have a hell of a lot more compassion for everybody else because you'll be a lot less likely to judge everybody because you'll actually understand, yeah, there's darkness within all of us. I did a video a while back that I put out on YouTube and it was about rage. We are seeing, we look around and we're seeing these young people buying guns and shooting people. And this is this is a tragic situation. And it doesn't matter what side of the argument you're on, you know, whether this is due to mental illness or this is we shouldn't have guns. doesn't matter. The piece that everybody's forgetting is that this is actually about rage. Well, what is rage? Rage is I'm not heard. My feelings don't matter. The world tells me I don't matter and that I'm not heard. That's repressed anger, which becomes rage, which is explosive. By the way, I want you to grasp Martin Luther King had plenty of rage. So did Mother Teresa. So did Gandhi. The world is changed by people who can tap into that and use it for the power of good. They have to go to the dark place to bring it to the light. But when we don't understand how to do that, when we don't turn into that darkness, when we don't embrace that darkness, it consumes us. The treasure you seek is in the cave you fear to step into. When you step into your darkness, you find that treasure that gives you the power that says, fuck it. I won't tolerate this in the world anymore. I want to make the world a better place. How can I do that? How can I use this power, this fuel, this magnificence within me, this fire in my belly to bring about something magnificent in the world? Yes, I want to be seen and I want to be heard, but I want to be seen and heard for a reason not to commit suicide by cop. So how can our young listeners venture into the caves they fear. What are the steps? Could you break it down for us, Dove? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. So here's the, here, I'm going to give you a few questions that are going to help you to, to step into that cave and to find the treasure, which is your purpose. And so most people who go looking for that purpose go looking for it in their passion. They go looking for it in the things that, oh, I'm really passionate about this. Well, I got news for you. The things I was passionate about at 15, 16, 17, 18 are not the things I was passionate about now. If they were, I'd be working at Victoria's Secret selling underwear, <laughs> right? So clearly, clearly my passions have changed, but my purpose has not. And your purpose is always found in your pain, not in your pleasure. So how do you start there? Well, one of the ways to start there is let me ask you this question. And I don't know how old you are. You might be listening to this. You might be 16, 17, 18 years old. You might be 60 years old. But it doesn't matter. What matters is this. For as long as you can remember, ask yourself this question. What has always bothered you? Whatever it is. Not what's bothering you this week. Oh, you know, you're upset, you're pissed off with Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump has only really maybe, for most people, has only existed for about three years. Now, for those of us who are older, we remember him before that. But for most people, he's been coming to the public eye in the last two, three years. That's not what's bothering you. There's something else. What has been bothering you for as long as you can remember? And it's likely, and here's where you start stepping into the pain, you need to look at what bothered you. And here's the key question. Are you ready? Write this down. As a child, under the age of 10, what did I need that I couldn't get or couldn't get enough of? As a child, under the age of 10, what did I need that I couldn't get or couldn't get enough of? Now, by the way, that's very unlikely to be a material thing. It could be a survival thing, as in food, air, water, shelter, but it's most likely to be something else, which is an emotional need. When you look at that, you will have to face into the darkness. You'll have to admit that you had needs. But if you're like most of us, you have a coping mechanism. Nothing wrong with that. That's part of your ego's job. And your coping mechanism has had you dismiss what you need until you made it weak, judged it, criticized it, boxed it away. And maybe here's the way you'll really know. You likely ridicule other people for having that need. So that person you're in a relationship with who seems very needy, they're in your relationship to show you that you're needy, but yours is repressed. So you look to what it was you've always needed. I'll give you a great example. A good friend of mine, I was helping him work on some things. He's a massively successful author and works as a consultant with very high-level companies and organizations and actually uh, pop stars. And we were having this conversation and he, you know, he's looking for his purpose and we're doing this work. And I said, what do you think is the number one thing you do? 
And he goes, well, I'm really showing people how to stand out, how to really, you know, in this age of noise, visual, audio, video, noise, the multiple thousands of images we get hit with every single day. I show them how to stand out. And I said, what do you think you needed when you were a child that you couldn't get? And he goes, well, you know, my mom was this and my dad was that. And they were, you know, I didn't have parents for a long time. I brought up with my grandparents and I was out, lived out in the street, blah, blah, blah. I said, what did you need? And he goes, I don't know. I just, I felt like this invisible brown kid. Mm. I said, you felt invisible? He goes, yeah. I said, what do you do for a living? He goes, oh my God. Yes. You meet the need you had in other people. Now you must meet that need in yourself. And that's why I'm going to help you to be more seen in the world. But it's not about being seen in the world, being seen in the world by those that it matters to you to be seen by. And he went, wow. Now, this is an incredibly successful, multi-millionaire, highly respected, wonderfully brilliant, intelligent person. He didn't not get it because he's dumb. He's incredibly brilliant. It's got nothing to do with, with intelligence. It's got to do with we protect ourselves from looking into the darkness. That's where you go. So once our listeners write down what has always bothered them, what's the next step? I know you've talked about at times the importance of keeping a journal. What about getting therapy? Well, as I said, you've got to look at what's always bothered you. You've got to look at what you've always needed. And this, this is some things for you to do on yourself. But let me be really absolutely clear. You heard me say my background. What you should know about me is as you listen to me, I don't know if you know me in any way, shape or form, or you've never heard of me. Maybe you haven't. That's okay. I am 60 years old. At least that's my chronological age. My wife would argue I'm much younger than that. And sometimes that's for a good reason and sometimes not so good. <laughs> hey, Dove, I'm 55 chronologically, but I honestly feel yeah. like I'm 30. So I totally get you. Right. So, so what I want you to know is this. As I said, I help people all over the world, people you would recognize and people you wouldn't recognize. I've spoken to the UN. I've spoken in Iran. I've spoken around the world with amazing, very powerful individuals and famous individuals. And what you need to know is I entered therapy at 19 years old. I went to a therapist at 19. Now, as Andrea said at the beginning, I was born in a ghetto. I was born in abject poverty, surrounded by crime and violence. You had to be tough where I was from. You had to be. And I went to a therapist at 19 who lived on, whose office was on the edge of the ghetto. And the therapist said to me, why are you here? And I said, because I wanted to be. She goes, well, are you having, you know, as your doctor said, you're having psychotic episodes. You know, <laughs> you know do you have some compulsions going on? I said, no. She said, well, why did your doctor send you? I said, my doctor didn't send me. I asked my doctor to give me a note so I could come to you. And she said, why? I said, because I know this more. And she said, that is very strange. I've never had anybody come see me. And I will tell you that I, what I want you to understand is, as I said, I didn't tell you about all the people I've served to brag. I tell you because no one is objective in their subjective reality. You can never be fully outside of yourself. You just can't do that. We all need a coach, a therapist, a guide, a mentor. And by the way, that coach, therapist, guide, mentor isn't your mom. It isn't your sister, your brother, or even your mate. They all may be lovely people, and I'm not saying anything against them in any way, shape, or form, but they're not objective. You need somebody who actually knows what the hell they're talking about, who actually has training, who can be objective. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean every therapist is good because some of them are really crap. They're terrible. I just gave you an example of one. <laughs> so don't, that's not what I'm saying. Don't take it as, oh, they're all, you should go to therapists and they're all good. No, no, no. You should go and you should spend time and you should consider whether this person can serve you. Because here's the thing, you know, as I said, I'm 60, I've done all that. I've been through multiple therapists and I always go in and the first thing I would say is, listen. Here's what you should know. I'm highly trained as a psychologist. I have a massive background of knowledge. And if you let me, I will run circles around you. And I'm not here to do that. I'm not spending money to entertain myself. I'm spending money because I want to get better. And I want to be able to see my blind spots. And if you can't hold me to that, and I'm a powerful personality, if you can't hold me to that, we can sort that out right now. I can turn around and leave. Or at the end of this, I'll tell you. 
And so you need to be clear about what it is you need, and you need to be clear that you will never have objectivity in your own life. We all need a guide. We all need a mentor, a counselor, a therapist, a coach, somebody who does not subjectively invest it in you. Amen. So before we get into, I suppose, more of the how our listeners can find their purpose in life, I think it would be useful for them to hear more about your life, Dove. And I'm wondering if you would be kind enough to share a few of the seminal experiences that you've had over the course of your 60 years, the ones that were incredibly painful and how they helped lead you to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. I mean, there are so many. And again, this lack of objectivity, I don't think we really truly recognize the most powerful ones until we have that place of where we can look in the rearview mirror and see the impact. There was an experience that happened in my early life when I was seven that I did not, I mean, I, I knew, but I couldn't remember the details of until I was actually in therapy in my mid 30s. So, you know, I started at 19. I'd been doing it for a while by then. And I came down the stairs as a seven year old boy in this grotty little house that we lived in and we came i came down the stairs and as i came down the stairs the stairs led into the hallway that were to the front door and as i came down i could see the front door was open and there was light coming into a dark hallway and at the moving towards that light was this silhouette of a man and as i came down the stairs this little boy of seven i realized that that was my dad and he was carrying something and i said dad dad where are you going And my father turned around, walked back to me, crouched down to be as close to eye level as he could, put a fake smile on his face. He touched me on one shoulder and then on the other shoulder and then ruffled my hair as if to knight me and said, I'm going now. You're the man of the house. And in that very moment, he stole my childhood. No seven-year-old is a man of the house. In that moment, I took on the responsibility of taking care of my mother and my siblings who were younger than me, that I was now responsible for keeping my mother happy who was in a very deep, dark depression and in all likelihood probably bipolar. I was responsible for the taking care of my siblings when my mother couldn't cope and there was no room for my feelings. That was the message and I took it very much to heart. That moment was transformative because I knew in that moment that I was inadequate for the job. But that inadequacy drove me. And in many ways, I'm grateful for that now, not at the time, now. So when, by the way, when somebody says to you, oh, this will turn out to be uh, the greatest gift of your life, punch them in the nose. There's no compassion in that. It's true, but it's not true at the time. So please understand that. Have compassion. If you see somebody going through that, going through something painful and you go on and say, oh, this will be a blessing. I hope they punch you in the nose because it's not a blessing at the time. It's painful. But it might be if they're willing to look at it. And so what I realize now is that inadequacy became a gift because it drove me to be adequate. It drove me to find out how to be better. The dark side of it, because it had a light side which drove me to be better, and the dark side of it was I never felt better about anything. I always felt like I had to be more and more. And that's why I probably did all those things I told you about, why I studied all those things, because I was trying to prove myself to myself. That's probably the truth of it. So... That was a transformational moment in my life that got buried, but drove me for years and years. And I became, you know, aside from all the things I told you about, I became a very successful entrepreneur. I was very respected. By the time 1990 came along, I'd lived on three separate continents. I ran businesses in three separate continents. I studied all the things I told you about. And I was a very successful speaker. And I came back from a speaking tour. And on that speaking tour, I, my manager said, you're exhausted. You're going to take a few days off. And I went, took four days off and went to a place called Whistler in British Columbia, Canada, which if you are familiar with Winter Olympics, it's where the 2010 Winter Olympics were held. And it was June. It was beautiful. It was sunny. And a friend of mine and I decided to go for a hike. And we did. And we went to a place called Brandywine Falls, which is this 200-foot waterfall. It's magnificent. It's this glacial water that comes winding and twisting down the glacial river. And is magnificent until it plunges off the cliff for 200 feet. And it's spectacular. When you look at it from the view above, and it's amazing. But I was an adrenaline junkie. Again, another part of that part of me that was always trying to prove myself. I was an adrenaline junkie. I was always doing 
crazy stuff. And so I said to my mate, let's see if we can get down. So we took this weird hiking, found our way down, and we got down to the bottom. And I challenged my buddy to see if we could go behind the waterfall. Do not do this. It is stupid. But we did it. Across wet, mossy rocks, we got behind the waterfall, fighting a 70-mile-an-hour wind that comes off the waterfalls. And just behind the waterfall, there's a small gap, and you can slide behind it, where it's massive amount of neg- what's called negative ions, which positively charges the body, the human body, the human nervous system. So when I came out on the other side, I felt indestructible. And I said to my buddy, let's not hike back. And he's like, well, what are we going to do, take the elevator? And he's laughing. And I'm like, no, let's climb. Climb, climb what? Let's climb the rock face. Now, I don't know if you know anything about rock climbing, but you, you might know that rock climbing involves ropes and, and all the right gear. And free climbing means you're climbing without those things, but you have chalk and you have the right shoes and the right clothing, etc. And we had none of those things. We were soaking wet, free climbing a cliff. And at about 120 feet, which is the equivalent of 12 stories, I reached for a rock that dislodged a bigger rock that hit me in the face and bam, sent me hurtling down onto the boulders below. Not gravel, not grass, but boulders where I was smashed to absolute pieces. I can't tell you the gory details because that will take too long. But needless to say, I died. And yet, I managed to get out of there and actually died five times during that short period of time within the next week while they rebuilt me and I've had 10 reconstructive surgeries. And when people say, oh, that must, that must have been the moment that changed your life, I want you to know it was not. It was the moment that more deeply embedded me in my ego. Because when people would say to me, how are you doing? And my jaw was wired closed. I'd say, I'm great. I'm coming back. But in life, there is no back. But I believed there was. I'll tell you how I believed it. That happened in June. In November of that same year, with my jaw still wired closed, I went bungee jumping in the Nanaimo River from 140 feet. That's how embedded I was in my ego improving that I was adequate, improving that I was indestructible. And it wasn't until in secret, I was sad and I was depressed and I felt terrible, but I would never let anybody know. Remember, I was a ghetto kid. I was a leader. I'd been a boxer. I'd been a martial artist. Nobody was seeing my weakness. And then I would go out with my mates and I'd have a good night out, but I I never felt like I could laugh. And I thought, oh my God, my life, my joy is gone. I'm never going to get it back. And one night I went out with the lads and I had this great night out and I laughed and I came home and I was feeling like so good, feeling like, okay, you know, I found my humor. I'm going to come back. This is going to be good. And as I walked in the door and I opened the back door, the light shone in from outside across the kitchen floor. And across that floor was festooned garbage. There was kitty litter. There were empty cans, meat wrappers, coffee grinds. It smelled disgusting. It was terrible. And I went from joyous to furious to rageful and went stomping around the house to look for the culprit. I knew exactly who had done this. I went looking for the culprit. When I got into the living room, there was the culprit curled up and looking so relaxed on the couch. And I lifted my hand to strike. But that's not who I am. And halfway down, stopped myself. And instead of hitting my cat, I put my hands underneath and picked him up and realized he was cold. And I fell to my knees and began to weep. Not cry, but sob. And within a few minutes, I realized, why am I crying for this cat that I didn't even like? It wasn't even my cat. And I realized I wasn't crying for the cat. I was crying because my life as I knew it was gone. You see, it was that moment of coming just before coming in the door, feeling like, oh, it can all go back to normal now. And then it can't. You see, your life is not changed in that pivotal moment when the disaster happens. It is changed in the moment when everything can go back to normal and you make a different choice. And in that moment, on the floor, in a fetal position, totally depressed, weeping, I said, I can't go on like this. There is no back. I've discovered that. I can stay here, and that was seductive. I can stay here as a victim and say, you know, the line from on the waterfront, I could have been a champ, but, you know, it wasn't my fault, and be a victim and have this great victim story I can cling to for the rest of my life, or I can find my purpose, find out why I'm really here on the planet. That was the transformational moment. Not the light place, but the moment I turned into the darkness and committed to keep going deeper into that darkness, and I did. I spent nine months in that very dark place. I journaled every day for hours and hours. I read every day. I spent, I went to my therapist with money I didn't have. 
and I went twice a week and I dug deep and I asked for homework and I refused to go back. And I want you to know that I was tempted to go back to my egoic ways, to my adrenaline ways, to all, to the mask a thousand times. A thousand times I was seduced back there. But every time I had to say, no, I can't be who I was. It doesn't work. It may bring me success, and it did, but it didn't bring me what I was looking for, which was fulfillment. Oh, my goodness. That is just such a powerful story. And thank you so much for sharing that, Dove. Thank you for asking. After nine months of journaling and going to the therapist and being in your dark cave, how did you find your purpose? In exactly the ways that I've outlined earlier, I really looked at what has always bothered me. What was it I was afraid to say out loud? This is always a very important piece. What is it you're afraid to say out loud? What is it that you feel that if you say it, you would shame you, let alone anybody else. Feel pretty sure that everybody else would shame you, but you would shame yourself for even thinking it. The interesting thing about your purpose is if it doesn't scare the crap out of you, it's probably not your purpose. It should actually scare the crap out of you because it should feel far too big for you because your purpose is actually not about you. That's why it should feel too big for you. It was like, what am I afraid to say? So I wrote down a whole bunch of things. I mean, this, this is questions that came from myself. Like, what am I afraid to own? What am I afraid to say? What am I afraid to claim about myself that I might get ridiculed about? And it was a bunch of things. I mean, I put and, and I gave myself permission, and I would encourage you to do the same. I gave myself permission to write down anything. In other words, things that didn't make sense, things that I thought I didn't really want. So I put down, I'm a singer. I'm a singer-songwriter. Well, the truth of the matter is, I do have an album I constructed and put together. I'm not a singer, not by any stroke of the imagination. I do write lyric, but I'm not a singer. But owning that part of myself gave me permission to actually go out in, in my later life, uh, about 10 years ago, and make an album. It was like, okay, that's a cool experience. I wanted to do it. I got it done. It's not who I am, and it's not my purpose. But what I understand is it gives a way for me to express my purpose into the world. So one of the things that happens with this, and this is a, the trap that you may be feeling in this moment, when you think of purpose, you may automatically, because of the world we live in, be thinking purpose and career go together. They can, but they don't have to. So what I mean by that is, as I talked about with passion, your passion is a vehicle. Your career is a vehicle. Your purpose is what is transported in the vehicle. You need to know that. Recording an album was a way, another vehicle for me to take my purpose to the world. That's all. And because it's a vehicle, I'm not attached to it. I understand what it's transporting. So it's not necessarily about the career. It's about the fulfillment of this thing that has been longing within me that I've always wanted. How can I give it to the world? And what is that? For me? Yes. So now you have to you're taking me deeper. Thank you. Um, and the answer to that is that the purpose has two forms. So you have what's called an external purpose and an internal purpose. Your external purpose is one you would say to the world because they will probably understand it. It's a language that's not diluting in any way, but is more sort of ability to be understood. Yes. So my external purpose is to live my life on purpose, facilitating the purpose in others so that my purpose is having impact on the people whose names I will never know and who will never know my name. It ripples out beyond me. So that's the external purpose. The internal purpose is the one that's where I go, <laughs> and every time I say it, I feel like I'm swallowing 50 golf balls. It's difficult, and like I said, it should be. It's difficult because it feels egoic, because it feels so big. Because it is big. It's bigger than me. And that is, I am a father to men. Now, that is not limited to men. Often women will say to me, so you only work with men? No, I work with many women. But I am a father to men. And what that is, is guess what I needed when I was a boy that I couldn't get? <laughs> I have to be able to provide that. So when I look at that, I say, well, what did that little boy need? What is it that little boy who's still alive and living within my psyche what did he need? And how can I provide that in the healthiest possible way to everyone that I meet? 
And so I have clients who will say to me, I have clients who are older than me who will say to me, you are a father to me. And it's not, it's not parental father. It's these elements. It's an ele- what I call an elemental father. It's not, it's not being your daddy. It's something else altogether. Would you say it, it's the nurturing? It's the mentoring? Definitely the n- nurturing. It's definitely the mentoring. So the, the nurturing is helping you to, to find your needs. That's the nurturing part. And meeting the needs that I can meet, but teaching you how to ask for your needs. It is the mentoring, which is the wisdom that comes from learning and experience. Absolutely. And it is the loving you enough to boot you in the ass when you need it with no cruelty, but to pull you up off the canvas and shout at you and say, you are not a freaking loser. Get up. That's what we need. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing your external and internal purpose with us. I can totally understand why the internal one is something that would take a couple of deep swallows to to get out. But I totally hear you and appreciate where you're coming from. And I think that's really beautiful. I really do. I think that is a wonderful example to share with our audience, with me, as to how we can help ourselves to really level up and achieve our purpose. And I call it a higher purpose in our lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have three final time for coffee questions for you. The first one is... What is the best career advice you've ever gotten? (laughs) So the best career advice I ever got was in 1989, very early 1989, I think like January or February. I arrived in Canada in 1988 from Australia. And in early 1989, a friend of mine said to me, you got to come see this guy. I think you'll really like him. And I was like, what's his name? He goes, his name's Tony Robbins. I'm like, who the hell's Tony Robbins? I've never heard of him. And he goes, oh, he's really good. Uh, okay. So I go see, I go to Seattle with them to see this guy. And I don't know him from a bar or soap. There's about 200 people in the room. And of course, that would be a very intimate event today. And at the end, Tony says, if you'd like to stay behind, if you've got a question for me, I'm willing to answer. He was very gracious and did that. And people lined up to speak to Tony, and I made sure I was last because I didn't want to be interrupted and didn't want to feel rushed. So I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and eventually I got to speak to Tony, and he said to me, how was the event for you? And I said, spectacular. He goes, you know, and he had a big smile, and he says, how do you feel? And I said, pissed off. And he was very gracious, and he smiled, and he said, that's an interesting answer. Tell me why. You know, and I said, because I'm at least as good as you are, and I'm standing here in a secondhand jacket, and you made 11 million last year. Now, we all know that 11 million would be a very bad year for Tony today. And he just smiled at me and he said, Who's on your team? And I said, What? He said, Who's on your team? I said, I haven't played soccer since I was a kid. Because that's not what I'm talking about. I said, Then I don't know what you mean. And he said, do you see that brochure you're holding in your hand? I said, yeah. He said, did I print it? I said, probably not. He goes, do you think I designed it? I said, maybe. He goes, I didn't. Oh, okay. He goes, uh, the chairs you're sitting, do you think I put them out? I said, of course not. And he goes, oh, okay. He goes, did I collect your ticket coming in? I said, no. He said, well, who did? And I said, I don't know. He goes, my team. He goes, you will never make it until you have a team. Now, you should know, I'm a nice guy. But I'm not so smart sometimes. Sometimes I can be a little slow. It took me about five years to learn that lesson, right? Include and a fall, you know. So the thing I'm trying to have you grasp is that the best lesson I was given is you will never do it alone. I was, remember, I was that seven-year-old. I learned to do it on my own. So I thought that was how life worked. I was wrong. I was dead wrong. That is not how life works. You need a team. There is no such thing as the self-made man, woman. Doesn't exist. Get a team. Find people who, who can support you in growing your idea and what it is you need. Spend the money on having the people who can help you. Yes, do your due diligence because there's some clowns out there, but find the right person who can really help you because when you do, everything transforms. Fantastic advice, and we got it for not even the price of a coffee. <laughs> Thank you, Dom. <laughs> uh, next question. What 
has the role of serendipity been in your professional life? So before I answer that, I want to I want to make sure that I understand the word serendipity in the way that you do. So tell me what you mean by it. Chance. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a uh, quick example. I graduated sure. from college. I was supposed mm-hmm. to go to Nepal mm-hmm. with the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. And a few weeks before I was supposed to leave, some guy who was painting my parents' home said, oh, Andrea's going to Nepal in September. Does she know about the rapes that have happened there of the Peace Corps volunteers? Well, this was back in the day before the World Wide Web, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. before cell phones. I called the Peace Corps office in D.C. They confirmed it. So there I mm-hmm. was in August of 1985, Dove, and I had no idea what I was going to be doing with my life. That was Mm. one example of serendipity. Within a matter Mm. of days, a man who had worked as a translator for my father a number of years before during one of the American president's visits to China, my father's a journalist, Mm -hmm. he happened to be in the United States and he just came from New York. I live outside of Washington, D.C. And he said, oh, Andrea needs a job. Well, this woman, Virginia Kampsky, only hires young women who speak Chinese. And I happen to speak Chinese because I studied it as an undergrad. And she's looking to hire someone to go to Beijing. So that's just Mm. an example. (laughs) A couple of quick examples. Great examples. And now I'm going to blow a hole in it. If that's okay. Um, I don't believe in chance at all. I think it's absolute nonsense. What I do believe in is the quantum law of resonance. The quantum law of resonance, and by the way, go look it up. And if you want to understand the simplest way to look it up, you can just look at sympathetic resonance and you'll find music. And under music, you'll talk about sympathetic resonance. And the sympathetic resonance example is if I have a tuning fork in my hand that is a D, a note of D, and I have a tuning fork in my other hand that is the tuning fork of also the note of D, and I ding one of them, the other one will start to vibrate. If I, on the other hand, have a D in one hand and a C in the other, and I ding the D, the C will not vibrate. That's called sympathetic resonance. You are a tuning fork. You both vibrate you receive and you broadcast a frequency modulation that is part of who you are. It is your quantum resonance field. The quantum resonance field broadcasts out. It is not the law of attraction. That is a very superficial understanding of what this is. That's like trying to describe cheese by the wrapper. It's just not what it is. So it is understanding that it is what you are resonating from an unconscious level out into the world. And what you resonate is what is attracted to you. And if you're wondering why shit keeps happening to you, uh, that's because you're resonating it. Now, let me stop you, because now you're about to beat yourself up and say, I'm a terrible person. No, you're not. A, it's unconscious. You have no choice in it, right? It's not a conscious process, but it's coming from your unconscious. And let me help you to clear it up. Deal with your shit. That's what it is. What resonates out and brings the crap to you is doing one of two things. It is either repeating a pattern so that you can stay the victim, or it's repeating a pattern so that you can overcome and deal with and become more in tune and aligned with your purpose. That's it. The crap that shows up is not there because there's a God punishing you, there's some accountant in the sky called karma. That's not how it works. Karma. It comes from the Vedantic word, and all it means is action. Go look up the research, the word. That's all it means. Action. Karma is action. It's the action you take. So resonance comes from whatever is in your unconscious mind. Thought plus emotion equals feeling. Thought plus emotion and feeling creates resonance. That's what's happening. So it has happened All over my life. My entire life is resonance. It is nothing else. Is another way of saying that, it's like if you put out good energy, you're going to get good things back. If you put out negative energy, no, it's completely different. No, because that's, again, back to the, the law of attraction, superficial crap. It's got nothing to do with what you think you put out. Your thoughts, have, your thoughts are such a minor part of that because your conscious mind is far slower than your unconscious mind. So just think of it in levels, okay? Top level, thought, easy, okay? 
I think something. People just stand around, they go, I am wealthy, I am wealthy, I am wealthy. And then they start crying because they've got nothing in the bank and nothing in their pockets. The affirmation didn't work. Why? Because it's a thought. Thought plus emotion, which is evoked, evoked, it's evocative in a moment. Thought plus emotion taps into memory. When you tap into memory, by the way, all memory is emotionally linked. You can research that psychologically. So thought plus emotion taps into memory. And because it taps into memory, whatever that emotion is that's associated to that memory then becomes thought plus emotion, which becomes a quantum resonance. It's what broadcasts out. It is not conscious. It's not good vibes out, good things back in. No, no, no. That's conscious. You have to deal with your crap. That's why you find your treasure in the dark place. I love it. So final time for coffee question, Dove. Mm -hmm. I know you didn't go to college, but you did do all kinds of studies all over the, mm -hmm. all over the place. If mm -hmm. you could do it all over again as a 18, 19, 20-year-old, but based on the wisdom that you have mm -hmm. now, what mm -hmm. advice would you give yourself? It's a great question, and I was asked this recently about two, three years ago when I was speaking to a group of young people who were about to enter, uh, leave high school, and they were looking at their education. And I said, and I was asked to give advice about education. And I said, eh, you might not like what I have to say, but is it okay? They said, yes. I said, okay, here's my advice. The bottom line is the educational system is broken. There's no doubt about it in my mind at all. It's based on a system that was designed for the industrial age. It's based on the, what's called the Prussian schooling system. And Prussia is what we now call Germany. And what happened is after the First World War, the Germans lost very badly. They investigated, being the Germans and being analytical, they investigated what went wrong. And what went wrong was people didn't do as they were told. They said march forward. People went left, right, and did whatever the hell they wanted. So they developed a schooling system that made people comply. And how did they do that? Stop them from thinking. Just shove stuff in and have them memorize. And that made them into good workers and made them into good soldiers. And that's what they did. The American industrialists saw this and went, wow, that's great. And they brought the Prussian schooling system to the rest of the world, America, Britain, etc. A little bit different in Britain, but still, they brought that system. The challenge with it is this. We don't live in the industrial age. We live in the digital information age, and people are learning at exponential rates. So what does that mean? It means, if you just think about this, there are people in work today working in jobs that did not exist 10 years ago. So what the hell are you going to university for? You're going to study something that won't even exist in 10 years to work in a job that where most of your education will become irrelevant? Here's the thing. If you believe that you have a real pull towards a career, here's my best advice. It's just my best advice. It's not the truth. And you don't have to follow it. I'm not telling you what to do. Do what you feel is right. But I'm just saying, here's what I would do. I would go, I would find a company. Let's say I'm interested in, let's just go to the most obvious. I'm interested in technology companies. So I go, okay, I want to work. For, you know, I'd like to, to work in a company like Apple. I am willing to go work in Apple as an intern for free for two years, take the education money and live off that. And I'm talking about not partying. I'm talking about studying while I'm working there. I'll get coffee, sure, but I'm going to listen. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to watch. I'm going to consume what's going on in my environment because epigenetics tells us we are a result of our environment, not primarily of our gene pool, but actually of our environment. So I'm going to be in that environment. I'm going to soak. I'm going to marinate in the environment that I want to learn in. Because at the end of two, three, four years, I'm going to have an education that you're going to come out with a BA in or a BSC in, and you're going to go and apply for a job. And they're going to go, wow, you did really well. you top of your class, but you don't know shit. I, on the other hand, everybody's gotten to know me. I've built relationships with people. I've started connections with people and I've learned and I've actually absorbed what's needed. One of us is getting the job and it ain't you. Well, Doug, true to form, you are <laughs> one of a kind and you have given a one of a kind answer there. I want to thank you so much 
for making. My absolute pleasure. Oh, my goodness. I want to thank you for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. Dove is the host of the national TV show here in the U.S., Pursuing Deep Greatness with Dove Barron on ROKU TV. And he's the host of the number one podcast for Fortune 500 listeners around the world, Dove Barron's Leadership and Loyalty Show on iTunes. It's also on FM and AM radio stations around the U.S. You have gotten a window into the kind of rock your world wisdom that Dove has to share. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. And if, you, if you've listened to this show and you've enjoyed this show, I want to encourage you to go to Apple Podcasts, to go to Spotify, to go to wherever it is you listen to the show. And I want to challenge you to rate, review, subscribe, and share the show. Because listen, Andrew is doing this. I, I don't know if you know, but people don't get paid in this, at this time to do podcasts. So she's doing this because it is part of her purpose to serve you. And one of the ways that she knows that you do that is if you rate, review, subscribe, and share the show. So please go and do that. And what's more is when you review it, tell us what you got out of it. Because information is worth the whole in the donut. Transformation comes from application. Tell her what you did, what you what you got out of it, what you're going to do with it. You can write to me personally, Dov, D-O-V, at D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. I do answer all my emails. You can write to me and tell me what you got out of the show. And if you want, tell me how I can serve you. I can help you and I'm happy to do that. But make sure you also let Andrea know so that she understands the value that she's bringing and that you appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.